In 1960s, there was a popular group from England called the Beatles who was here in America. Uh, Some of you have heard of them maybe before. Others of you are teenagers and you're thinking like, who in the world are they? Well, in the 1960s, the Beatles released a song by the name of Eleanor Rigsby. And it talked about all the lonely people. Look at all the lonely people. Where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Since the time of the Beatles and even before that, there have been a lot of other music groups and artists that have sung songs and painted paintings that have to do with this human experience of being all alone. Well, today is our second part of the sermon series that we're in called The Road to the Cross. And what we're doing is we're following Jesus in these last events of his life leading up to the crucifixion. Today, what we're going to see is Jesus in the midst of profound aloneness, profound isolation. Now, our study today picks up in Jerusalem, but uh, just to kind of help us understand this, um, this is not where the mission started. And we have a map today so we can kind of see everything, picture all of this. But the mission started up north in, in Galilee. Jesus' hometown was up in Galilee, and that's where he was raised. Jerusalem is down in the south in Judea, and Samaria is there in the center. It's kind of separating the two. Up in Galilee, though, is where Jesus collects his many disciples. Uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they're fishermen on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee there. They're that little blue area there on the, the north side of the map. Jesus knew those men, and one day he was walking along the shores, uh, and he stops, and he says to Peter and Andrew, he says, hey, put down your nets and follow me, and I want you to leave your business behind. I want you to leave your family and become a part of my uh, special uh, trained task force. And they accepted that call and that mission. Later on, James and John are fishing and Jesus tells them, I I need you to leave your boats behind. I need you to leave your family company and follow me. And they do. In fact, Matthew, he's a tax collector up in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. and, And Jesus sees this tax collector and he makes a tax collector, one of his disciples, one of his 12, which was a scandalous thing because people of what people thought of tax collectors. So the mission, it started up north in Galilee. And I want you to know, though, as well, that the conflict started up there, too. The conflict uh, was over what type of people Jesus was hanging out with. That Jesus seemed to have a deep affection for the spiritual lowlives. They, were, uh, they, they would surround him. They would listen to him talk. On top of that, there, there were these arguments that surfaced, arguments about who could, uh, what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And then there was this whole conflict that erupted when Jesus started looking at people and saying, hey, I forgive your sins. And the religious leaders were saying, hey, no one can forgive sins except for God. And so this scandal begins up north. But if you're living down south in Jerusalem, you're thinking, well, you know, At least it's all up there in the north side, so it's not really affecting me all that much. But now, uh, during this festival, uh, this last week of Jesus' life, uh, he comes south with his disciples, and the problem that was up north becomes the problem down south as well. And it's festival week, this festival called the Passover. Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, and the people go nuts, and they're screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna! 
which means God save us. This is a country that is under Roman dominance and the Roman soldiers are marching through the city streets and the people are yelling, God save us as Jesus rides in. Jesus goes down to the temple complex and, and he camps out there day after day after day as if he owns the place and it would be like this old western movie. You know, you, you think about those old western movies and, and there's this sheriff that, that goes into the middle of the village and he says, hey, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And that's kind of what these uh, religious leaders, as they're looking at Jesus and they're kind of saying, hey, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. And they want to kill him. The problem is that during the day, he's teaching there in the temple complex, and if they arrest him there, he's so popular that literally there would have been a riot that would have out, broken out in the uh, temple complex. But then they wait till night, and they can't find where he's at. However, they have lucked out. One of the 12 uh, chosen, selected, trained task force men, a disciple by the name of Judas uh, comes to the leaders there in Jerusalem and he tells them, hey, I I'm going to show you where he is at night. I I'm going to lead you to him in the darkness and I'm going to point him out to you. And as, they come, as we come to the text this morning, it's now nighttime, just hours before Jesus' arrest. And you think, well, surely uh, one of his um, 12 has defected, but there's still 11, right? There's still 11 close, loyal, devoted, diehard friends that will never leave his side. And it's in that moment that then Jesus drops this bomb and he says, well, you're all going to fall away. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, by this time tonight, it, 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 you're, you're, before the time is over tonight, you are going to all run away. You are all going to leave me, and I'm going to be very much alone. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning, and so if you have a Bible with you, or you can grab one in the pew rack in front of you, but join me in Mark chapter 14. As we walk through this story this morning, I want very much for us to see Jesus and in some way to try to get our minds and our hearts around what, what he is experiencing. To try and understand what he's feeling. And what I want more than anything else is for this message and for this series is that we might get reacquainted with Jesus. That, that, that some of us might get acquainted with Jesus for the first time. And that as we get acquainted with him, that our affections for him would grow. That we would see him today very profoundly uh, deserving and all alone. The story unfolds in three locations and we're going to see Jesus, we're going to watch Jesus as he travels. So three locations and location number one is the road, the road. Jesus leaves the upper room, he leaves the last supper, he leaves the city of Jerusalem and he and his disciples go down this road across the stream and back up the hill on the other side that leads to this olive orchard. I want you to read here what happens. This is Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. And when they had sung a song, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Jesus says, it is written. And when he says that, he's actually quoting something from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah. 
Hundreds of years before this time that, that Jesus was here, it had been prophesied about him and it had said, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, will be scattered. And Jesus is the shepherd. And what it's saying is that, that the shepherd is going to be hit and the sheep are going to run absolutely in chaos and confusion. And he is telling his select trained task force people that by this time tomorrow night, by, before the, 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 the night is over, you are going to be disillusioned and there's going to be chaos and confusion and you will run for your lives. Now, there's something here in this text next that happens in verse 28 that I want us to not focus on right now, but I want us to just see this here and then we'll come back to it at the end later. Jesus says in verse 28, but after I, have ra- I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Galilee was where Jesus' mission had started. Galilee was where most of them were from. And what Jesus is going to do is he is already looking through the abandonment. He's already looking through the arrest, through the trial, through the crucifixion. And he says, you know what? I'm coming back. And after I am raised up, I am going to be reunited with you up in Galilee. He talks uh, about this reunion that is going to take place before these awful events even take place. Now, Peter's standing there, and Peter's like, hey, there's no way that this is ever going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to run away. Look at what it says there in verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. He says, yeah, you know, Peter and John, or James and John, you know what? They might desert you, but not me. And my brother Andrew, he might run. Philip and Bartholomew, they might take off, but not me. uh, You can count on me to be there. I'm not running. Well, Jesus looks at Peter in verse 30 and he says, Listen, I got some news for you here. Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, before the sun comes back up and a new day begins, you will deny me three times. Verse 31. But he, Peter, said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. He said, Peter goes, over my dead body. I mean, if they're going to kill you, they're going to have to get through me in order to get to you. And everybody else says, yeah. Yeah, what he said. This conversation that takes place on the road is a conversation that is marked with overconfidence. I want to suggest to you two things here. Number one, they are incredibly vulnerable. But then number two, they are oblivious to how vulnerable they really are. They they don't see this coming, but Jesus does. And what you have here is not only Jesus' prediction that he would be abandoned by them, but their repeated emphatic denial that such a thing could ever happen. Now, I want us to think about this and to consider this for a moment here. And I don't want us to consider them so much and to think about them so much, but I want us to think about us. Think about us. We're naive to think that we would never fall flat on our face. There's a scripture in the Bible that says, that that, that comes to my mind, and it says, you know, let him who stands be weary lest he fall. And there is something dangerous about this attitude of saying, man, I could never slip. I could never do something that could ever damage myself or uh, the other people around me. Friends, I think it would be good for us to regularly look ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, there have been better men than I 
who have done some really stupid things. Ladies that you would say, better women than I have fallen flat on their faces. There's an old hymn that we sing around here. Uh, it's one of my favorite hymns. And it's called, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. In the song, there's a line that's quite haunting. And it goes like this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And then there's this prayer that says, Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Just love the brutal honesty there of the hymn writer when he says, You know, I know that my heart can drift so absolutely unimaginably. Location number one is along the road, and it's this conversation that is marked by both vulnerability and this massive overconfidence. But Jesus here is predicting that he is going to be left desperately alone. Location number two, they arrive at the garden. Now, this is called the Garden of Gethsemane, and I don't want you to picture some well-manicured flower garden here, but imagine, if you will, in your mind, when you hear the Garden of Gethsemane, not uh, tulip time, but um, uh, olive trees. And, and we have a picture here of what this would have looked like. The, the name Gethsemane, it actually means oil press. And I'm told that even today, if you go up there on the hills that are outside of Jerusalem, that you're still going to find olive trees there but in this garden location number two G jesus does something with his 11 remaining disciples remember judas had already defected at this point and jesus takes his disciples and he separates them into two groups he has the uh, has eight of them stay in one location while he takes the other three his inner circle his three closest peter james and john and he goes with them into this garden a little further now He's going to go even further himself and he's going to talk by himself with his father about this awful situation that's about to happen. But first, he has this conversation with his three closest disciples. And what he's really saying is this. I need you guys. I can't do this alone right now. I, can't, I, I don't want to be alone. I need you guys. Look at what it says beginning in verse 32. And they went and, uh, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he, he took with him Peter and James and John, that was the inner circle, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled and said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Listen, Jesus knows what's coming. He is physically, visibly shaken by what he's about to walk into. It's so much so that he, he says, you know what, this is killing me. And then he says, Remain here and watch. I just need my closest friends to be nearby. I need you to be with me. Verse 35, um, we read this next, and it says this. And going in a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So Jesus goes a little further into the garden. He throws himself on the ground and he begins to pray this agonizing, anguishing prayer. And he says, Abba, Daddy, Father, 
I, I, I don't want to drink what is in this cup. Could you please take it away? Remove it. Before the night's up, he's going to be spit on. And that saliva is going to run down his face. Before the night's over, he's going to be blindfolded and beaten up. Uh, before the day's over, he's going to be laid down on boards and he's going to be nailed to them, suspended in the air and taunted by his enemies. That is what is in this cup. Before the night's over, he's going to undergo the interrogation from some of the most powerful people in the entire country. He will, have, he will have to go through this all alone without the support system of his closest friends. That is what is in this cup. And he says, I don't want to drink what's in here. Could you please take this cup away? Also, I think that in ways that we can't fully comprehend or understand as Jesus is hanging there between those two common thieves, those two common criminals, he's carrying the weight of every sin that has ever been committed. Every angry word that has been screamed in any house, every abusive thing said, every abusive thing done, Jesus is carrying all of that, and it was horrible, it was awful. And here he is in the garden, and he is on his face, and he says, I don't want to do this. Do I really have to drink what's in this cup here? Please take it away. And to some degree, we know what it's like to pray a prayer like this. You might say, God, please make this lawsuit go away. Make this disease go away. Make this nasty, bitter mood of my teenager go away. Make this depression go away. I love this apartment. And then all of a sudden, these new neighbors moved in. They showed up and they started playing their, this loud, crazy music till four in the morning. And they won't stop fighting all day long. God, would you please make this go away? And that's a legitimate prayer. It's a prayer that seems to move the heart of God, the activity of God. And at the same time, I just want you to notice and not skip over how Jesus ends this prayer. He says, please remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And so, if you want me to drink from this cup, then that's what I'm going to do. I will drink this cup. This is an incredibly powerful prayer here because on one hand, as we pray this prayer to God to remove this cup from us, there, there's this attempt to then move the hand of God, to move the action of God. And yet there's also a recognition that we need to be in line with the will of God. And some of you have prayed this prayer hundreds of times, maybe not even knowing it, but maybe you grew up and you were pray, you've prayed the Lord's Prayer before. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What, what I'm suggesting here is that it's okay to come to God in prayer and to say, God, you know what? I, 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 God, would you please do this in my life? Would you do this in my circumstances today? But at the same time that we would acknowledge, God, your will is so much more important than anything that I would will. Anything that I would want to have done. And so here is Jesus. He is the submissive son. And he asks for this cup to be taken away. But God says no. And Jesus is going to drink every last drop of what is in the cup. He's so alone. He, he needs his support from his friends he is so badly. And yet he walks over. And what are they doing? We read in verses 37 and 38. 
And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, is indeed, indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And isn't that the way it often is in life? That sometimes there is this gap between the people that we want to be and the people who we actually are. Jesus goes away and he prays again. He comes back and he finds them asleep again. And scriptures say that they're so embarrassed that they don't even know what to say. They don't even know how to answer him. He goes away a third time and he prays and he comes back and they're sleeping a third time. And it's like they're with him there, but they're not with him. It's like they're in his company, but they're not really in his company. It's like he has these friends, but he's separated and isolated from his friends. And finally, after the third time, Jesus says in verse 41, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas knew where Jesus and his disciples were in the garden. He had been there before. And so he comes into the garden with this bunch of men who are carrying swords and clubs. And he comes up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi. And he gives him this kiss on the side of the cheek. And Jesus looks at this group of well-trained soldiers. And he says, hey, you know what? I've been in the temple every day teaching and preaching. And you could have arrested me there. Why didn't you arrest me there? Instead, you come out in the middle of the night and you bring this SWAT team with me. With you. Am I somehow leading a rebellion that you have to try to sneak attack on me? When it becomes apparent that Jesus is not going to resist arrest, that he's not going to fight, we read this in verse 50. And they all left him and fled. They cannot get out of there fast enough. They take off running and they don't look back. You see, the shepherd has taken a blow and all of the sheep are scattering in chaos and disillusionment and confusion. There's an American painter from the early part of the, century, uh, of the last century. His name was Edward Hopper. Hopper is, uh, well, has some well-known paintings that actually are on display in the Chicago Art Institute downtown. And some of you may have seen these paintings before. You, probably, you might be familiar with them. And uh, one of the particular paintings that, that uh, he painted is one that I want to show you here this morning. It's a painting called Night Hawks. Night Hawks. One of the things that you'll notice about a lot of Hopper's paintings is this idea of alienation and aloneness. And, and so you have this little diner, and there are all these customers, and they're seated inside uh, this glass storefront. And you're on the outside, and you're looking in. Now, obviously, there is a door to get into this place somewhere, but you can't really see where it is. And it's almost like you're uh, looking in on fish in an aquarium. So there's this separation between you and them. But then if you look closely at the people there in this painting, there are four of them. And they're not really connected to each other all that much. There, there's one guy and he's sitting all alone. He's hunched over a beverage or a meal. There, there's a server who's inside the counter and he is wearing a server's outfit. And, and he's separated physically from the guests and where they are. They're, he's separated by this counter. There, there's this couple we're not even sure if they really are a couple or not, but they're sitting close to each other. It looks like they might be together, but they're not even looking at each other. They're, they're staring straight ahead. In this painting, it's kind of like a case study 
of what it's like to be around people and yet at the same time to be separated from those same people. And maybe if a painting like that was done today, you just see a bunch of people who are sitting on their cell phones kind of scrolling through their news feeds and, and playing games or whatever else they're, they're doing and having all these people around them but not connecting to the people and being all alone. When was the last time that you felt isolated and all alone? Maybe someone who was close to you died and you've been going through this season of grief. You have friends who showed up, but they they kind of get on with their lives soon after they showed up. And you've been having trouble getting on with your life. And you carry this grief with you for months and and for years. Maybe it was uh, a move that you went through in life and you lost this friend group that you are a part of. New school, new uh, job, new, new church, new neighbors, even... Uh, ever since I was born, um, my parents, they actually lived in the exact same house. Uh, they, 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 uh, in fact, when I was growing up, I went to the same grade school that my dad went to, Marshallville Elementary. When I was going into seventh grade in my junior year, my uh, parents decided that they wanted to send me to a Christian school. Uh, I, I was going into junior high, and, and I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends at all. And it was really tough. It was a tough transition. When was the last time that you felt all alone? You've been married. They've been married for uh, 52 years. Suddenly his wife is experiencing the telltale signs of dementia month by month. And and these shared memories that they have together are being lost. and, And he has her, but he has less of her now. The spiral that has happened in their life has been making them feel isolated and alone from the rest of the world. They're in this spiral of depression. You're a mom. You're staying at home with your kids. You change dirty diapers. You make food for your family. You clean the house. You run to the park. You do laundry. Your kids are involved in all sorts of activities, art class, school plays, music, hockey, basketball, baseball, uh, volleyball, football, track, swimming, tennis, gymnastics, and you're so busy running to all of these places, and and you're running uh, around all of these people all the time, and yet you feel alone, you feel isolated. When was the last time that you experienced that? Friends, this is what Jesus experiences in our story today. He wants his friends. He needs his friends, but he is all alone. Now, I find this interesting because on that day, when your heart is breaking and you look up and you you feel like this weight and you say, hey, do you have any idea what I'm going through right now? Do Do you know how I'm feeling right now? A voice comes back and says, yes, I absolutely do. And Jesus understands your aloneness because he went through it. So that's one thing that's incredibly powerful from this story, but there's something else here. That is, not only does Jesus understand our aloneness, but I wonder, do you understand his? The story is leading us sentence by sentence, location by, by location, through absolute desertion of those who he had invested so much time and attention and energy in. We're supposed to grow in our affection for him because when, he, when we get Jesus, we get someone who has traveled that road for us. We, we get someone who has gone through this whole human experience with all the joys and its pains and its tragedy. And he did it all for us. 
Jesus is taken away by these armed guards and the 11 disciples scatter. They all run. And as they're running away, one of them stops and says, you know what? I'm not a coward. I'm not a deserter. I, I, I said I made a promise that I was going to stay with him and I'm going to keep this promise. And Peter turns around and he follows this arresting crew to the house of the high priest, a guy by the name of Caiaphas. And here Jesus will be interrogated through the night. Now, the setting, the location where this takes place is our third location and it is the house. This is not a small house, but this is a rather large estate. We have a picture of what this would have looked like uh, here this morning. And it was this courtyard in the middle with all of these uh, columns around the outside of it, surrounded by many rooms on the outside. Peter walks in and he camps out in that courtyard area. Apparently it's cold outside and some of the people are standing around this fire. They're warming themselves. Peter walks right into this area and he joins them. But Jesus is just steps away from here and he is being interrogated by some of the most powerful people in all of the country. He just steps away. I want to read to you a couple of the verses here from this interrogation scene. And here's what we read in verse 55. Now the chief priest and the whole council, the, the Jewish council was made up of 70 people. And it was called the Sanhedrin. So the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So the Sanhedrin are trying to follow protocol here. And so if somebody had been charged of a crime, you had to have at least two witnesses who would agree on the same basic details. And they can't find two people who could agree on the same basic story. They, 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 uh, they're, they're trying to lie. These people are lying, but they can't even get their lies straight. Verse 57 says, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We he heard him say, I will destroy this temple that, has been, that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now, they, they thought that Jesus was talking about the, the temple there in Jerusalem, but he was actually talking about himself. And what he says is, you know what? You can kill me, but I'm coming back. And three days later, I will rise. Really, um, what this whole thing uh, it was about was authority. What the Jewish leaders were saying is, hey, wait, you know, are you claiming that you have ultimate authority in this country? You're just some little teacher from up north in the sticks. Are you seriously claiming that you have authority over us? The only person who could claim to have authority over us is the one who would be the coming Messiah. Are you claiming to be the coming Messiah? Now, interestingly, in the midst of all of this, all of these accusations, Jesus just stands there and he is totally silent. Finally, the high priest says, are you going to say anything to these accusations? But Jesus just stands there. He remains silent. You have to understand something there, that their case is beginning to unravel. And they finally have Jesus, but they can't get him. And so the high priest is so frustrated about all this, he turns to Jesus and he says, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus has been silent this whole time, but in verse 62 we read this, And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with, uh, uh, coming with the clouds of heaven. He basically says, Yes, I'm equal with God. I am God. 
in verse 63, it says, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard this, his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and cover his face and strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Now Jesus isn't even to the point of Pontius Pilate where he's being whipped. And yet he's been spit on and beaten and mocked. And he probably has a bloody nose, maybe even a broken nose. His eyes are swollen. He's going through this all very much alone. Except for this one guy. This one faithful, loyal, diehard disciple who is out there in the courtyard standing around the fire. And I think that Peter can see all of this happening. Girl walks by. She's a servant in Caiaphas' household. And, she, and we pick up the story there in verse uh, 67. Here's what we read. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I, never, I, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. Now, this girl recognizes Peter from the light of the fire because he's standing close to the fire. She recognizes him, and, and he thinks, well, you know what? I better get away from this. I better get into the dark shadows of the night so that people, no one else can see me, so that no one else might uh, recognize me and place me with Jesus. And so he moves. But this girl walks by again, and she says now to the people around him, around Peter, and says, hey, you know what? I'm pretty sure that, that guy was with Jesus, Nazareth, and and Peter says, no, I'm not. I don't even know the guy. And the people standing around him, they recognize that he has this Galilean accent. And they say, hey, you know, wait a second here. You're, you're from up north. You're from Galilee. And Peter says, seriously, I never met the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. And in that moment, the rooster crows in the distance for a third time, marking the dawn of a new day. And it says that Peter broke down and wept. He broke down and wept. Question, do you ever disappoint yourself? Yeah, you know, you've been disappointed by government leaders, disappointed by family, disappointed by the church, disappointed by friends, disappointed by people who you work with, but have you ever disappointed yourself? Find Peter here in this moment of huge failure, doing something that he never thought that he would ever do. And he cries like a little baby. Do you ever disappoint yourself? Well, this is scene number three, the house, but I want us to just go back to scene number one for just a moment here. Jesus had said, it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter but then he gives us this picture of hope and he says, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. You know, I think this is something that Peter needs to hear, that Peter needs to remember here. Because the reality is that failure doesn't have to be fatal, that failure doesn't have to be the end of the story. Jesus would go through all of these horrible, messy events and yet he would see through all of that to a day when there would be this reunion that would take place where they would be together once again. You see, the Jesus who was left all alone will never leave them 
all alone. The Jesus who was deserted has no intention of deserting them. And this is incredible news. This includes Peter. And it includes us as well today. To persecuted Christians who are almost ready to give up on their faith, they're told this in Hebrews chapter 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. At the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always. I am with you always to the end of the age. I want to ask the worship team to come forward, and we're going to prepare for communion together here this morning. As they're coming, I just want us to reflect on this. As we travel through the tragic story of aloneness that Jesus experienced, my friends, we are supposed to feel something. We are supposed to see him, supposed to experience him. We're supposed to hear him. We're supposed to watch him. And our affections for him are to grow. We're supposed to get reacquainted with him. As we get reacquainted with him, the story today ends with the knowledge of the one who was abandoned will never abandon you. The one who is left all alone has no intention of leaving you all alone. You are not alone. Seek him. Reach out to him. Find him. Like I said, we're going to be taking communion together here this morning. It's a great privilege. And this is a tangible reminder to us of the fact that God deeply cares about each and every one of us. That Jesus died on the cross for your sin and for mine. We've been talking this morning about this road to the cross that Jesus suffered and died in our place for our freedom. And what we're saying here in the bread in the cup is, Jesus, my only hope of being right with God is you. I trust you as my Savior, as my Lord. And so if you've placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ... This isn't based on something that you did in the past, but even today that you want to reaffirm this fact that, that, that Jesus is my only hope. Then today we invite you to participate with us, join with us in taking these communion elements and reminding ourselves, remembering the fact that Christ died for you, for me. We're going to sing together. Uh,